Hello, Ghost Family. Sam here. I apologize for being away from your headphones for such a long time. And if you are still hanging around the feed here, it is good to be back with you. I'm coming into the feed today for sort of bittersweet reasons. The bitter reason is that, as some of you may have guessed, it is definitely going to be a, a pretty long time, I think, before there's another new episode of Family Ghosts here in the feed. I'm not ruling it out permanently, but I do want to be honest with all of you who have been so wonderful and supportive of the show and say that Family Ghosts as a project reached a point for me where it was a little bit too heavy on my heart to spend as much time as I was spending in such difficult territory and to feel like I was still able to do right by the subjects who did me the honor of coming to me with stories of theirs that they wanted me to share with the proper care and sensitivity and emotional bandwidth to do so. I just got to a place where I did not have that uh, bandwidth anymore. It's it, For the moment, it's, it's a little bit tapped out, and it just doesn't feel right to tell more stories from a place where I know I don't have the necessary commitment to meet those stories where they are and then travel with them to the places that they need to go. So I want to thank all of you for listening to Family Ghosts. It was one of the most fulfilling artistic experiences of my entire life. It fundamentally changed me, and the fact that I got to share it all with you is one of the most special experiences that I have ever had. But I also want to tell you that the project that I'm here today to introduce you to is lighting me up creatively like nothing since Family Ghosts. It's a project called The Midnight Disease, and I'm not going to say too much about it in this intro because, as you're about to hear, the intro of The Midnight Disease itself explains what The Midnight Disease is. <laughs> but I do want you to know that if you love Family Ghosts, I humbly think that you will find that The Midnight Disease is fueled by the same spirit of empathy and care and curiosity and an attempt to get beyond the surface of things. And so even though the format of the show is going to be very different than a Family Ghosts episode, The Midnight Disease is mostly a, a conversational show, I hope and think that you will be able to hear those same Family Ghosts creative values resonating in the Midnight Disease. And I want to let you know that if you do like what you hear, this is just the first half of the first episode of The Midnight Disease. There's a whole second half of the interview that gets into some really fascinating territory for Family Ghosts fans, in particular if you enjoyed our episode Still Close about my own adventures with spiritualism. My guest on the first episode of The Midnight Disease is a real-life psychic medium, 
And among other things, she tells me all about how that element of her life informs her songwriting. But if you want to hear that part of the conversation, uh, you've got to go over to the Midnight Disease feed. Just search for The Midnight Disease in Apple Podcasts or Spotify and subscribe. And if you would, leave us a review. You all know that makes a really big difference. Okay, folks, signing off for now. Here is the first half of episode one of The Midnight Disease. I offer it with all of my gratitude to all of you. Thank you. Albert Vetch was the first real writer I knew. Not because he was, for a while, able to sell his work to magazines, but because he was the first one to have the midnight disease, to have the rocking chair and the faithful bottle of bourbon and the staring eye. He set a kind of example that, as a writer... I've been living up to ever since. I only hope I haven't invented him. That was Michael Chabon. I'm Sam Dingman, and this is The Midnight Disease. W-A-L-T, it's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Geffel M930 via the Avidus MA5, the Harrison 32 EQ, and the RNC 500. Analog tones on a Monday afternoon in the moon cabin. So, what is this show? <laughs> well, in 2014, the actor Al Pacino was profiled by John Lahr in The New Yorker and asked to define his approach to acting. Pacino spoke four words that I have not been able to get out of my head since. Go with the glow. And I don't, of course, know exactly what Al Pacino meant by go with the glow. But the meaning that I take from it is that what he's doing, first and foremost, when he's acting, is following a feeling, a pull towards something intuitive that feels alive, like a flame, something that he is compelled towards, something innate about this character that feels really connected to something innate about him that he wants to express. And he actually, elsewhere in this profile, says that the pursuit of that glow is so important to him that there's this story that he was in a rehearsal once and a director was giving him notes on his performance and Pacino was counting numbers in his head to try to distract himself from what the director was saying so that he wouldn't hear it because he was worried it would interfere with his connection to this glow. So all artists obviously have a craft, whether it's acting or painting or poetry or pottery or filmmaking or dance. But the great artists, 
I think the great artists know that that craft is in service of something else. This pursuit of the glow. That the craft is the only known compass that can get you there. And that the work of art is to recognize that glow. And then also to recognize the circumstances that are necessary to allow the glow to radiate out through the craft. And then, on top of that, to somehow develop a practice that creates those circumstances. Whether it's sitting up all night with a bottle of whiskey, or counting numbers in your head during a rehearsal. And I think the midnight disease is the ability to recognize the feeling and then to dedicate yourself to the constant pursuit of it. And this is going to be a show about how artists do that. On every episode, we're going to talk to a great artist about when they first felt the feeling, what it felt like, and how they find their way back to it through the work that they make. Now, why does this matter to me? I didn't grow up with religion, but I believe in the potential of art to transport me to a kind of fourth dimension, a realm beyond rational experience, a sensation that overtakes me and seems like it unites all the disparate threads of the third dimension, where I spend most of my time. For example, there is a note that Eva Cassidy hits in the last verse of her cover of Oh, Had I a Golden Thread, and when she sings this note, I feel like she is rattling the retaining walls of human experience. She is breaking through to something else. When I look at Alex Katz's paintings, I feel like I can see his subjects breathing. When I watch Philip Seymour Hoffman movies, it always feels like his characters are somehow speaking my inner monologue, no matter what they're saying, even and maybe most of all, when what they're saying is, why are there frogs falling from the sky? And this feeling matters to me because it's the closest I've ever come to a belief in something bigger than ourselves. And the reason I want to explore these feelings in a podcast is because I have been making podcasts for 15 years, and almost all of them that I have made have been long-form narrative nonfiction podcasts, two that I'm particularly proud of our family ghosts and the rumor if you are interested but as much as i love stories and storytelling the sense of coming unstuck in time during the making of those shows it didn't happen during the writing of the episodes it didn't come in the research it didn't come in the pulling of clips it didn't come in the assembly and scoring of the audio it came in the conversations that I had with my sources and my co-hosts. And the shows that make me feel that way as a podcast listener are conversational. So that's what this is going to be. And the goal of these conversations 
is not necessarily going to be to figure anything out. Although we might along the way. The real goal is to bask in the glow of the benevolent curse. Or, if you will, the midnight disease on WALT. So for this first episode, I talked to one of my absolute favorite singer-songwriters, the great Jocelyn McKenzie. Now, you might know Jocelyn's work from a trio that she was in for a while called Pearl and the Beard. You might also know her from her solo work on the record Push, which came out in 2021 on Righteous Babe Records, which is the legendary record label of the also legendary Ani DeFranco. When Jocelyn and I talked, actually, uh, she had just come back from being on tour with Ani. And Jocelyn also is a psychic medium, which we will talk about in the interview. The thing that struck me the most about Jocelyn when I first saw her perform is the state that she enters. And I talk about this with her, too, but to try to give you some sort of a preview When you watch Jocelyn perform, the sense that I have is that it's almost like she herself is not there. Like, in the moment of performing this song, she has become a vessel for the song. And so I put a version of that to her in the conversation, and it turns out that she actually has a very specific answer about what's going on in her body and in her spirit that is giving me that impression. Jocelyn is also the author of probably the most haunting lyric of any song that I have ever heard. And you're going to hear her tell me the story of how that lyric came to be. going to start recording so that uh, I don't forget to turn it on when we formally begin talking, but just Great. so you know the recorder is now on. Thank you, sir. <laughs> um, one of the things I wish a lot of people who did audio-based art, let's call mm-hmm. it, whether it's music or podcasting, would be more honest about is like, it is so fun to hear your voice. Oh, it's so fun. That's like part of why I make music. It's because I want to hear my own voice. <laughs> so I'm not going to lie about that. No, I, I'm, glad, I'm glad you're not going to lie. I, yeah. Whenever I hear somebody say, oh, how could you listen to the sound of your own voice all day? I, I would be mortified. I'm like, I no. think you're lying. Yeah, you're, yeah, you love it. One of my responses to that that I have to check in myself a lot is 
Methink the lady doth protest too much. <laughs> that comes up for me a lot. It's like when I'm super resistant to something, it's because I want it so bad. Usually. Mm. Usually. You know, mm. either that or it's like a really hard no. And uh, right. <laughs> it's like, no, the, under no circumstances. Um, <laughs> but if I'm like, how could you? I'm justifying the reasons why I actually want to explore it. Yes. I, I have the same experience. For me, it's often when someone is, when I see somebody else having, uh, seeming to sit in comfort in an impulse to celebrate themselves. <laughs> I'm like, you must be ashamed of yourself. Yes. <laughs> And what I what that feeling actually is is I am ashamed of my own inability mm-hmm. to advocate on my own behalf. <laughs> yes, hundred percent. I'm going to tape that to my wall. Why do we do it? Why? Why do we do it? We're in, welcome to the human condition. Yes, uh, <laughs> Jocelyn McKenzie. This podcast is called the Midnight Disease, and before I give you my take on what that means. I'm curious what it conjures for you. What what comes to mind? Oh, my goodness. It is very evocative. I feel sweaty. <laughs> I <laughs> am awakened in kind of that panic attack feeling when you know you have a big thing coming up or a deadline or something, and you just can't sleep because you keep waking up thinking that you've already missed it. Mm. And maybe you're... Did you ever drink so much that you sweat it out of your pores? <laughs> that. Uh, unfortunately, on more than one occasion. Yeah, same. And it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's bringing up that, like a detox feeling. That is <laughs> a fascinating answer. Yeah. Um, I think of the midnight disease as a generative state, mm. um, a kind of trance that I feel like I go into um, – when I am making my best work, um, and also, unfortunately, a state that I am dependent on and have no reliable way of conjuring. (laughs) (laughs) I hear that. But to hear you say it, it almost sounds like for you it is more of a reaction to Mm. a previous state of Creative generation? Sure. Am I hearing that right? Yeah. I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. So what does your generative state look like when you're writing a song? Yeah. Say, what time of day is it? Where are you in your space? Yeah. And how does it work? That's a really good question. Well, for me, I'm I'm an early, early morning person. Mm. Morning. Early morning. Before anything else has happened. Before anyone can talk to me. Before... <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so for a while, um, I was waking myself up at 4 a.m. to get into that exact state. And, you know, I have a dedicated morning routine that I do. I've been doing it for about, I want to say this morning routine I've probably been doing about seven years, maybe maybe six years. Wow. But I get up and I and I say this because I, I don't dive directly into that mm-hmm. state. I, I have to kind of do my morning routine. And so it involves journaling. Mm-hmm. Definitely involves coffee. The first thing is coffee. The second thing is journaling. And then um, reflection and, and meditation. So I meditate for 15 to 20 minutes. And that – what that does is it literally – you know, the journaling is, you know, morning pages. It just completely – it's just a dump. It's just a slate mm-hmm. clean, mm-hmm. dump the the brain mush mm-hmm. from the day before, get it all out. The meditating kind of cleanses the palate and the reflection is like, okay, what do, what is this day going to look like? How do I want to behave? What are my intentions for the day? And then once I've done that, 
then if I'm in that 4 a.m. state, because I'm like delirious, I'm very tired. Sleep deprivation is a great tool. If you're looking for a tip of how to get into that state, <laughs> you know, reliably, right. deprive yourself of sleep. It, it is, you know, probably very unhealthy. But um, Starve your brain. <laughs> starve, yes, and do not get any rest at all. Um, but it works, and it, it, it is so rewarding because then, you know, by 7 a.m., 8 a.m., I've got hours of work under my belt, and I'm just like, yes, and I'm so juiced, and then I go back to bed, and I take a nap until 9 or 10, and then, you know, have this little moment of, I had a whole day, and now I get to, like, take a nap in the morning like a toddler (laughs) and get back to my, like, emails, you know? So this, thank you for sharing that. Um, I love the specifics of it. It makes me think of um, one of the quotes that inspired this podcast is uh, from Toni Morrison, Mm. And she says, um, I'm going to mangle the details slightly, but she says that for her, she has to get up and make a cup of coffee that is the same color as the sky. Mm. And then she has to drink it before the light comes. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it, there's something about like beating the light yeah. that is important to her. Yeah, I love that. And it makes me think of that sleep-deprived state that you're – purposely kind of entering Mm -hmm. i think of that state as sort of like a smear Mm -hmm. like you're smearing between unconsciousness and consciousness yes and what a rich space for interesting work to bloom absolutely i love that and you know so the 4 a.m wake up thing i definitely do not do that every day um that's kind of a special occasion thing when i like really need it but it's how i can conjure that state at home Mm. but truly the 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 breakthrough into this sleep deprived kind of smear state. Um, a dear dear friend of mine, Guy Capisolatro, who's an incredible musician and um, just a maker of all kinds of things. He invited me in 2015 for the first time. I went uh, to a songwriting retreat on Star Island, New Hampshire. So really, that so you know, and it's you know four days. Star Island is a place where. You only can visit there if you're going there either on a day trip or with a conference. So it's a it's a communal hotel. And so everybody's kind of sharing meals, sharing bathrooms. And it's built in the 1800s. There's like nothing there. There's not a restaurant. You know, the dinner bell rings and they serve you whatever's for dinner that night. But the goal there for this retreat, the Writers in the Round songwriting retreat, is that artists come who – some of them, it's the only time of year that they ever write. Some of them have been writing for 30 years. Some of hmm. them have never written a song. There hmm. are poets. And it's just this spirit of there's just no ego. There's no ego. And it's challenged by choice. So there are classes that you can take or not take. There are, you know, round-robin shares that you can participate in or not. And one of the things that Guy would do is he would kind of take over. So there's all these little buildings all around the island. And one of them is like an art barn that I like to go into. And it's got like filled with art supplies. And at 2 in the morning, you can go in there and just make whatever you want. Um, My God, this is paradise. You got to come. It's really fantastic. And so Guy would take over this one building and just set up his recording equipment and just write songs and just stay up until, you know, the sun came up or whenever. And he would take these little tiny micro naps. And I just started doing that kind of, I would find my own corner, of course. But, you know, and it was it was like, you know, being in this chapel that was built in 1800s at three in the morning during like a windstorm on an island in the middle of Maine, you're just like, what is even happening? Like, yeah. 
and that surreal feeling and also this feeling of being able to kind of like channel the spirits of like all of these people and, yes. you know, historical figures who had passed through there. And and then also to just like pass out and know that breakfast will be ready at eight when the breakfast bell rings. Uh-huh. And, you know, you know, you don't have to think about meeting your own needs. It's just everything is provided for you. So that state of being able to hyper-focus mm-hmm. to try to recreate that at home is, like, challenging because, like, nothing can really, like, touch it mm-hmm. also in some ways because it's just such a specific, very special, yeah. wonderful community experience. And then, you know, so 4 a.m. is the best I can do yeah. in my house. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Well, y- you said 2015 was the first time you yeah. went. Um, and you said you've had your personal version of the ritual for about seven years. Yeah. So am I right that 2015, seven years ago? Yeah, that's right. Am I right that this is the place you discovered this practice or discovered it and then began to adapt it for your own? Funny enough, it's actually not. They're they're totally unrelated. That's just a connection that's happening right now. Oh, okay. Um, okay. That's so funny. Yeah, I guess I they, – they were coming at a big – momentum change in my life a lot mm-hmm. shifted mm-hmm. in my in my world between 2014 and 2015 mm. um pillars pillars of my personal experience <laughs> just like i don't know if you're into the tarot but it was like a very like tower year for me I'm like into the tower. I, yeah everything was just like nope you're starting over so it was a big start over year can we momentarily for any li- i suspect that most of the people listening to this will be familiar with the tower card oh sure but could we give a a quick physical description of it for yeah, those who aren't definitely well the tarot uh tower card um, is it, the traditional Rider Waite deck has an illustration of a kind of a medieval-looking tower with, you know, the kind of checkerboard-looking spires on mm-hmm. it, and it is in flames, and there are people falling off of it, and it's got a lightning bolt coming down, and it's gonna, it's crashing, and it's about to, you know, be destructive. So when it comes up in a tarot reading, people are often very afraid of it mm-hmm. because it's scary. It looks very terrifying and foreboding. Um, but really, for me, the the meaning goes a lot. It's a, it's more rich, and it talks about destructing old institutions and behaviors and yes. and things that no longer serve us so that mm-hmm. we can pave way for something new that needs to happen. So, yeah, 2015 was a big year for just, like, clearing the way for for new stuff for me. And it was it was really refreshing and and also, like, hard. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's mm-hmm. not it's not an easy clearing. Um, are you comfortable talking at all about what was shifting for you in your life? Thanks for asking. Sure. Yeah. Um, it was a lot of stuff. Uh, well, the number one thing was I, I had to kind of look at my uh, relationship with substance abuse. Mm. And so that was the hugest thing for me in 2014. And, and so See I— See earlier, sweating out boots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, midnight disease. Um, so, yeah, so that was, that was intense. And so, you know, to kind of stop my behaviors and and learn to have new ones was a huge shift. That was a huge learning shift for me. And then in that process, kind of in that first year of looking at, you know, what it looked like to live without drugs and alcohol, um, which I couldn't imagine Mm -hmm. for most of my life. I could not imagine Mm -hmm. not having drugs and alcohol in my life. Um, Then it impacted in a way, I don't know if it was the catalyst or if just now that I had more clarity, su- suddenly things were becoming more clear to me that I had just swept under the rug for a long time. But I went through a, a pretty gnarly divorce at the time, mm-hmm. which was really challenging and, and painful for both of us. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And also I had some skirmishes with my family that were really challenging. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, uh, also my my band, Pearl and the Beard, stopped touring at that time for various reasons. And now, thankfully, we've, um, you know, we all just really wanted different things. But for yeah. me, like, you know, now we're we're close and things are great and we're collaborating again in new ways, which is awesome. But, um, you I'm know, at the time. I'm seeing why the tower is a meaningful oh, yeah. These are yeah. base notes. <laughs> it was base notes. My marriage, my uh, career, and my family – and uh, my coping mechanisms completely mm-hmm, <laughs> like mm-hmm. fell out from under me, literally in the sa- like in a six month period. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just was literally. And you know what though, I have to say, at the time, I was on one hand, it was the scariest thing I've ever been through. It, truly, I mean, everything literally fell apart within six months. Like, mm-hmm. but at this, on the other hand, I have never felt more trust in the universe mm. and more free. Mm-hmm. And more grounded. And I think, and I said this at the time, if any one of those things had stopped or changed or shifted, I don't know if I would have had the audacity to actually make the changes that I really needed to make. You know, because it was everything all at once, I had no choice but to like literally just uproot my life. And I I was living upstate at the time and I moved back to Brooklyn with like literally, I think I had like $700 Wow. And I didn't have a place to live, and I didn't have a job. Like, I thankfully, a friend of mine was subletting her place at the time, so she let me stay there. Mm-hmm. And that was amazing. Like, the timing was just so cosmic. Like, everything was just, like, cosmic synchronicity after synchronicity after synchronicity, just, like, landing me in the right place and the right place and the right place. And so I just kept trusting that. I was like, I'm fine. I'm going to be fine. This is actually what I need to be doing. And as scary as wow. it was, I had to let go of everything. So it took this, in retrospect, you're saying it seems like this convergence of disruptions. Oh, yeah. To um, make you uh, recognize the need to build a new foundation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and in that time, you know, one of the things that was kind of coming up for me was, you know, now it was like, okay, well, I still want to be making music. But what does that mm-hmm. look like now that I don't have a band? Mm-hmm. What does that look like now that I don't have money. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What does that look like, you know, in certain ways? So in that first month of moving back to Brooklyn and having like, you know, very little money and, and, but meanwhile, a ton of support, Mm -hmm. I called in a bunch of favors and, and was able to work with some folks who helped me put together, um, my friend Guy was one of them, helped me put together my first solo EP, literally like in that, you know, I moved back to Brooklyn, I think in like July of 2015. Mm -hmm. And by like August, I had released my first EP because I was just like, I have to process this this way. Hmm. And one of the things that was interesting about it was this feeling of, I I wrote a song called Kids that came out on that first EP. It was called Unlovely. And um, in the time of, after my divorce and and this, this very (laughs) dour (laughs) moment, um, I couldn't find a song that was, because I needed something upbeat to to pump up my vibration and give me like a little juice in the morning to get me out of bed. But I couldn't find any breakup songs that were upbeat that did not say screw you to the other person. Y- you know what I'm saying? Oh. So like any upbeat breakup song that I could hear, they were like, I didn't need you anyway and you right. know, get out of my life and who cares about you? But I was like, that's not how I feel. Like right. I I mean, I, we got divorced for a reason, but like I didn't want to 
say that about my ex. Like I didn't. Right. That was not the energy that I needed. Like I wanted my ex to be safe and happy and healthy and warm. But just like yeah. I knew that being with me was not the answer to that. So I was like, <laughs> how does that? How do you? So so this song Kids came out and it was really about like the complexity of like came really, out of you. It came out of me and like uh-huh. loving someone and and wanting what was best for them, but also like not wanting to be with them anymore. Mm-hmm. And so to write music that I needed to hear mm-hmm. was truly like next level healing for me, you know. And was that a departure from the way that you had approached songwriting previously? Had mm. had the impulse to because I feel like you're describing this. Um, oftentimes, I think this is going to sound like a digression, but it's going to come back. <laughs> oftentimes, I think when people hear about um, artists following an intuitive process, mm. I think some people hear that and think it's just like a fancy word for laziness or <laughs> um, kind of flying by the seat of your pants. Sure. But I think what it often means in concrete terms for many artists, not all, is a realization that I need to answer my own questions. Mm, yeah. And it is the organic pursuit of those answers, which may not look from the outside like any sort of rational process sure. um, that is going to lead me where I need to go. Yeah. Um, and I hear, that's what I hear you sort of describing when you say you wrote kids because you wanted to hear the kind of song that you were looking for to make you feel better. Yeah. Um, so uh, the question in that, I suppose, is when you wrote songs prior to that moment, were you also trying to write the sort of song that you wished someone else was kind of providing yeah. for your emotional moment? That's a really great question. You know, I don't know if I ever did kind of as purposefully as I did with kids before mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I love you talking about this idea of like, Intuitive, like intuitive writing is uh-huh. kind of a guise for for laziness or uh-huh. like you know phoning it in because I love that you said that I really don't think that that's acknowledged enough and yet like this idea that being technical and being very strict or editorial or you know like quantitative about our work to me is like to me and this is just me but like is the, the antithesis of being an artist. Like, why Absolutely. does stuff have to make sense? Like, stuff does not have to make sense. If stuff needed to make sense, I would be an accountant. But art doesn't, at least to me, it just doesn't make sense. And, like, that's part of the beauty of oh, why yeah. I want to communicate with it. Because to me, the work has a lot to say. Mm-hmm. I, I and, and as someone who identifies as someone who channels, and, you know, it, this is something that, like, I was experiencing my whole life. Um, of I would just be walking down the street, often very much doing like a right brain activity, mm-hmm. uh, like washing the dishes or taking a walk or in the shower. Yes. It makes space for me to hear music mm-hmm. that is, com- for me, coming from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Often, often, especially when I was in that headspace, if songs would come through and then I would listen to them, then later it would be my job to kind of like, okay, let me get this through my body, let me get it out, and I'll sing it. Mm -hmm. I'll write the words down that I'm hearing. Mm -hmm. Um, Often, something would happen later that would be backed up by something that I had written. So an example is my song Better that is on my record Push. Um, That song was written in 2015, actually. That was a big summer for me. Oh, wow. And I had had the chorus kind of rolling in my head for a long, better, 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 better. Like, that was rolling in my head for years. And I, you know, had um, 
you know, been connecting with a really close friend at the time and, and we were really helping each other get through. He was going through a breakup as well at mm-hmm, the time and, mm-hmm. and it was really hard and we were just really there for each other in this way that was like incredibly powerful and life-changing for both of us. And, you know, the verse came out. Uh, the first lyric of the first verse is, listen up, the whole world's in a flux of a fever mm. and sent to search and destroy by the ether. And I'm like, what is this? And I just like kept writing it. And I'm like, okay, well, that's what I'm hearing in my brain. Let me just write it out. And I didn't know what it meant. And mm-hmm. I was like, somebody said this. This wasn't me. This is something else. <laughs> and then fast forward a few years and we're in a global pandemic. And that was when that song came out officially. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. the whole world in the flux of a fever. Mm-hmm. I could not have written that. That's what I'm saying. Like I'm not that talented. Like I don't know how to write lyrics like that. Um, that came from somewhere else. And just like to uh-huh. trust that laziness or like mm-hmm. allowing. I like to call it allowing. Yes, is is a, a receptive state that is highly, highly, highly necessary. Like right. look at a golden retriever right. sitting in a sunlight beam. Right. You know, they're just laying there, and everyone's like, "Oh, I wish I could be like that golden retriever. I wish I could just lay in the sunlight and love my life and just be asleep and just have." a great life and just love everything I see. And then when it comes to being an artist, they're like, well, you better work hard. You better not just lay in the sunlight and love everything you see. Yeah. I often think of it as a, a state of active surrender. Yes. I love that. Um, the other thing that you are talking about that I think is so important when it comes to this subject is the recognition that creation is not an orderly process, yeah. that it is not accounting. Yeah. It is a, a, a nonsensical practice that acknowledges the importance of nonsense. Yeah. Oh, Um, I love that. Yeah. So jumping back to something you were talking about before, um, prior to this 2015-2014 moment and discovering a way of writing the kinds of songs that you wanted to hear in your head Mm. and um, finding the Star Island community, if you're comfortable talking about it, how big a role did substances play in your generative yeah, practice? That's, that's a great question, too, because I think a lot of artists, and, and I was definitely afraid of what would happen to my artistry if I didn't have mm-hmm. my best friend, Jim Beam, sitting next to me. Uh, <laughs> Sir James. <laughs> yes, Mr. James. Uh, yeah, I mean— For me, drinking was a lot more tied to um, performance rather than generative Mm. work. Mm -hmm. Um, And, again, that, like, right brain moment of just kind of, like, being in rhythm with something and then allowing a song to come through, that would often happen in a time or a space where, like, I hadn't quite gotten out the bottle yet. Although I was terrified to write my first song sober because I felt it coming. So it was this feeling of, you know, because I I can sometimes go for months and months and months and not write a song. And then I'll write 10 in a weekend, you know, or or one will hit me out of nowhere on the subway, you know, and I'm just like, yeah, okay, great. So that when I feel it coming, it's always this like, ooh, it's like, it's almost like when you're about to go on a first date with someone, but you're pretty <laughs> sure you're going to like them. And you're just like, ooh, I, I think like maybe you met through a friend. So you have like a good authority that like mm-hmm. you'll get along and, you know, so you're like, oh, you're excited, but you don't know what's happening. And sometimes it just tanks, but 
a lot of times you're like, oh, yeah, I want to see this person again, right? So I was getting that feeling sober, and I was like, oh, my God. And I definitely wanted a drink. I was like, I should for sure have a drink right now. And so thankfully I, you know, called some friends, and, you know, they talked me off the ledge. Mm -hmm. But, like, you know, and it, and it was one of the most honest songs I had ever written. It was so honest, like painfully honest to the point where, like, I played it for my ex at the time, and he was like, um, <laughs> like, could you not play that song anymore kind of thing? Um, but it just was, it, I mean, it was terrifying. I want to make sure I understand this moment where you said, I'm feeling this song approaching me. Oh, yeah, me. I could feel it. It's coming through me. Yeah, I'm, I need to drink. I need to have a drink. Yeah. What was that moment? Why the drink? Was the yeah. drink going to help you? Hide from the song? Oh, good question. What was the drink going to do? Oh, man. The drink was going to be able to help me handle my feelings. Okay. I couldn't handle feeling any feelings. I still uh -huh. have a real hard time with it, which is mm -hmm. part of why I make music. Mm -hmm. It's because I can handle my complex feelings. That's mm -hmm. also part of why I make music and not necessarily. I do write poetry occasionally, uh -huh. but poetry is so raw for mm -hmm. me because if done well, it exposes the heart in this raw nerve way that I then walk away from as if somebody just like ripped the Band-Aid off, but it's actually just like a full body cast and then just like leaves you alone <laughs> in the desert and like, now you figure it out. And I'm like, no, like I can't do it. But like melody for me provides a little bit of like a balm mm. to that. You know, like you can put jazz hands on death and you can put like sparkles on, you know, heartbreak and remorse and regret mm -hmm. and it, it makes it feel a little bit. I feel bit. like you're, you're basically describing your oeuvre of song. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. I write about death, but also there's jazz hands. Yeah, um, yeah I write a lot about death. Um, but it's, you know, but that feeling, yeah, that that tinglingness of I just can't, I don't trust myself to be able to handle this. Mm -hmm. I don't think I can really feel my feelings mm -hmm. at all properly. Mm -hmm. And to learn over time that I can have more than one feeling at the same time. Mm -hmm. And the two-feeling state was something that in the past – drink had helped with. Oh, yeah. I mean, it just was like, okay, um, you're going to be fine. You're yeah. going to be fine. You yeah. know, it's like that feeling of like, I don't know if you're into um, like roller coasters or like, you know, water rides or things like that, where it's like, you know that you're, you have to buckle up. And, and like on one hand, like intellectually, you know, you're safe, right? Mm -hmm. You're like the odds of me having a freak accident and dying on this roller coaster. Like I, I'm in more risk crossing the street in Brooklyn, honestly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But our, our bodies, our physical mammal bodies, because we are mammals, mm -hmm. which is something I have to remind myself every day. Mm -hmm. My mammal body is like. Why are you doing this to me? You are a nightmare. <laughs> you have betrayed me. <laughs> you have betrayed us all. But like that's why you do it. It's because you know that it's fun, but you also know when it's going to end. You know when it's going to end. On a roller coaster. On a roller coaster. Yeah. And you go, okay. And you can see the track. You can see the track. You have someone next to you usually. It's rare that you go on a roller coaster by yourself. It does happen. I've done it. It's fun. But like, but just to be there and go, okay, I know for the next two and a half minutes, you know it's going to be brief. Also, mm -hmm. it's not going to be five hours of being on a roller coaster. No one would sign up for that. Yeah. Right? You might be um, in the line for five hours. But. <laughs> exactly. But then you can, you know, it's going to be temporary. It's going to, and, and even if I want to throw up, even if I feel like this was the worst decision I ever made, after two and a half minutes, it's going to be over. Mm -hmm. And then I get to walk and go have a hot dog and go say, okay, that was enough. I'm good. I'm going to go home. But with real life emotional things, when you're walking into it like that and going, oh my God, what is going to happen? I'm signing up for something in, like totally overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Like 
how am I going to handle this? What am I going to do? You, you can't see the track and no. you didn't get in line for it. You did not get in line for it. It was not your choice. You're just suddenly thrown on this thing and get me off this ride. And drinking got me off the ride. Yeah. You know, and so even if I was on it, I didn't feel like I was on it. Yeah. I'm like, what ride? Yeah. You know, and there's, I think you'll you'll appreciate this. I heard this from somebody, so I can't take credit for it, but this idea of like the difference between delusion and denial, Mm -hmm. right? So denial, if if your house is on fire, you're going, okay, well, you know, I guess, you know, one, it's just the one room and I can like live out of it while I'm, you know, it's under construction. (laughs) And I guess the, the, it won't be that bad. It's fine. It's fine. And you're just like, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. That's denial. Delusion is you're looking at it and going, what fire? Right. Right? Right, right. And so to be in a state for me, I was in a state of pretty constant delusion for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And it's a survival mechanism, right? Like mm-hmm. people do their best. And, and that was me doing my best. Mm. And and to just be like, oh, yeah, like, did I have the worst life on planet Earth? No. Did I have the best life on planet Earth? No. But because on paper things were going really well, uh-huh. um, I was in a great band. I was living the dream. I had a beautiful apartment, a wonderful spouse, you know, a great family. Like, all the things on paper were really great. So then, you know, to to just be like, oh, yeah, but I'm – why am I – why do I need to get off the ride then? Right. And I wasn't able to be like, oh, actually, underneath this all, yeah, there's an underlying current of I don't really – this isn't what I really want. Yeah. You know, it can be great and and not the thing that I want. Yeah. You know, and that was part of the thing that I wasn't finding in other music. And just to, like, mm-hmm. be able to write music about that complexity, like the sacred and the profane, like, mm-hmm. this can be beautiful and not the right thing. And what is more seemingly profane than being in a position that people external to you would recognize as ideal? Mm. And having a deep awareness that it is wrong yeah. for you. Yeah. And wanting to scream and rend and tear it all down yeah. and fearing that you won't have support from people because they yeah. couldn't possibly understand why yeah. you would want to leave this, yeah. this construct behind. Yeah, absolutely. I want to get to performance next, but yeah. um, before we move off this roller coaster thing, <laughs> it, it struck me, you've articulated such a... A beautiful metaphor for this whole idea because you're talking about how drink was a way to to not experience the ride mm-hmm. um and this phenomenon that we do with roller coasters where we take a picture of ourselves yeah. in the state that we're in <laughs> on the roller coaster totally and it's almost like you by white knuckling through the ride yeah. finally were able to then create a song that was the picture yeah you oh know? my gosh sam that's Gorgeous. Yes, I love that. And and we love those pictures yeah. because they are us at our most <laughs> emotionally real. Yeah. You know, like this is <laughs> this is what my face looks like when I am concerned that I'm about to become a human pancake That's on right. pavement. Yeah. Um and th- we recognize at theme parks the value of capturing that level of vulnerability. Yeah. But we don't often think about the idea that artists have to find ways of reliably conjuring that state. Mm, I love that. In order to um, give us songs that uh, remind us of it. Yeah, I love that. So let's go to performance yeah. because you talked about the relationship between drink and performance, mm-hmm. but also because for me, performance is how I first became aware of you as an artist. Mm. Um, I have a, a very specific memory of seeing you play for the first time. Oh, really? Um, it was at a 
party. I don't remember the reason for the party. Um, <laughs> Who needs a reason for a party? Yeah. Uh, it was in a room where there were people doing tarot readings. Um <sighs> There was maybe like a kissing booth. There was somebody doing fortune telling. Um, There was like a clothing swap happening. And then in a corner, there were musicians playing. Yes. And as one might imagine, when one conjures an image of a party like this, (laughs) um, the musicians were sometimes fighting for attention. (laughs) And and this was at Otto's Shrunken Head? Yes, it was. So you are talking about... The gay witch seance that <laughs> my friend, my dear, dear friend and former bandmate, well, current, always bandmate, Charlotte Morose, okay. uh, sh- that was her mastermind, the gay witch seance. It was right after, uh, not right after, but she had had a residency at Otto's and uh, it was after the Trump election and it just felt like, oh my God, like we cannot, what what can we put back into this world? And so she masterminded that entire party and it was one of we talk about that still. I mean, that was like four or five years ago, and we still are like gay witch seance. Like we can never recreate that. It was so perfect, amazing. I'm I'm so glad that you reminded me that that's what it was because when I think about it uh, as an event, I don't know if I would have been able to say this before you reminded me what it was <laughs> called, but it was like instead of it was like dunking your head in witch's brew, yes! like <laughs> like Charlotte, like you've done it, throwing your head right in the cauldron. Yeah. Um. But what I remember is when you took the stage, you stepped onto the stage and you had your ukulele and you started singing Sick and Suffering. Mm. And you were on your knees. And I remember a sense of everything in the periphery going into blur and watching you sing this song. And I want to talk more about that song specifically mm-hmm. in a bit because it's very meaningful to me. Okay. But it was more the state that you were in. It was the fact that you were on your knees, yes, which was visually remarkable. Mm. Um, but it was something about the gaze mm-hmm. that, was, that was on your face. You were, your, your gaze was angled up, like above everybody who was watching you. I had this distinct sense that you didn't care if we were paying attention to you. Mm. Um, and, you know, you have talked about this sense of channeling, and it was, that is a perfect description for what it looked to me like you were doing. Mm. And it was so magnetic. And I have I have never seen anybody else really enter that state as a, as a musical performer. Wow. And I had the impression that it's not that you were taking the performance seriously, it's that you were in communion with something mm. and that that was so personal for you. And yet it was also so compelling in my memory to everybody else in the room. Mm. It, w- it was like you weren't doing it for us, but we could not help but honor the communion that was happening in our midst. Wow. And I guess the, the very like – pumpkin spice latte question (laughs) to ask about that is who are you singing to oh wow in that moment i love a good psl man that's (laughs) that's a good that's it thank you for so much before i answer that for that reflection that's really meaningful for me and i really appreciate that that's not 
at on that is not wrong. What mm-hmm. what is happening there? Okay. Um, who am I singing to? I am singing to a broader version of myself. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that really empowers me as a, as a musician, and particularly with live performance, whereas it's it's one of the few spaces and times and moments in human kind of, I'll say like society or like culture, right, where we actively allow the suspension of disbelief for a certain amount of time, but we're putting ourselves in someone else's hands very physically. Mm. So like a roller coaster is one, but like we're kind of relying on the machine Mm -hmm. in that sense. With live performance, and that could be, you know, theater, music, Mm. you know, poetry readings, storytelling, podcasts, things like that. The audience comes in and says, I need a break from my life Mm -hmm. for the next however many minutes. I'm relying on you. Calgon, take me away. Here we go. And they put themselves in your hands. And I don't know, and this is going to be maybe like a little bit of a witchy woo-woo answer in a certain way too. But so so you have you have the trust of <laughs> however many people show up. Sometimes it's 12, sometimes it's 1,200. So I don't know if you – so this is the, the kind of witchy answer is I don't know how you feel about auras or energetic spheres. I feel good about them. Okay, great. I also feel good about them. Um, scientifically, for those of us who are not interested in, in the aura kind of magical interpretation of that, um, the electromagnetic impulse of our heart actually has a radius of 12 feet around us at any point. So um, that is science. I am not a scientist, but I have it on good authority that that is true. And so uh, anytime we walk into a communal space, when you say, you know, and this is kind of a, a one way to think about psychic experiences, where Psychic really just means, and I'm answering your question, but this is kind of a developed Oh, I'm, I'm on this roller coaster okay, ride. <laughs> okay. so, so psychic is really an extension of our physical senses, right? So any time, for any physical sense that we have, there is a psychic extension. So when you, we most often hear about clairvoyance, voyance meaning I saw a vision, so having to do with the seeing. So we'll see that sometimes in our mind's eye or in like a film or something, however people see things. But there's also clairaudience. So I heard a voice. Clairtangency, I felt a touch. Um, clairsentience, like I had a feeling, an emotional feeling. Mm. Um, claircognizance, like I just knew. And these senses there you know there are clairs for every physical sense so these senses are everyone has them everyone has them it's like how sometimes you'll see your dog like barking at something that you can't see your dog has it too right Mm -hmm. or when you walk into a room and you don't know why but that person in the corner i'm not going to talk to them they seem Mm -hmm. like they're having a bad day they haven't Mm -hmm. said a word to you they haven't looked at you you just know i'm going to avoid that person over there Mm -hmm. that's a psychic experience we have them all the time we just don't talk about it like that mostly right So when it comes to performance, many artists and and audience members rely upon psychic interactions to really fill out the experience that they're having, right? Because for someone to just play – and you can imagine – and you've seen this because it it absolutely happens. You've gone to a show where someone is literally just playing chords and just singing – and which is beautiful. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's a flatness. There can be like a technicalness to it. I guess that's what I'm yeah, trying to I'm, say. I'm imagining a um, 
a jazz guitarist trying to get their fingerings exactly sure. right. Sure, and something. there's a lot of incredible stuff that goes into that that I have no business even doing at all or talking about because I can't even touch that stuff. Um, but it's so when I am in a state of performance, I lean very, very heavily into my audience's trust in me that I can take up more space than my physical body. Okay. So I am leaning, I am playing into the entire room. Okay. So, and if the room feels too small, I play to the entire block. And But I am expanding my consciousness outside of that 12-foot electromagnetic field where it normally is. And I'm pushing it out. And especially at a place like Auto Shrunken Head where the, the, <laughs> it's, it's beautiful and, and cozy enough mm-hmm. that you can really hit the walls. But there's enough also, if you've never been there, it's like a, an incredible tiki bar. And it has all these wacky decorations and everything mm-hmm. is like, you know, it looks like it's from the 80s and it's fantastic. So I'm playing into every crevice of every tiki cup. I'm playing into every yes like millimeter between each strand of hay on the wall. Uh-huh. You know, I'm playing into every person's shoelaces uh-huh. i'm I'm literally going into the the middle of atoms and playing into that space and am I hearing you right that you're also acknowledging that we as audience members, by dint of coming to see you play, we have implicitly said to you, "I leave space for you in my twelve foot auric yeah. field. please come please into that enter. space please enter and in fact i I am here to be touched by you in what way I don't yet know. But please touch me because that's why I'm here. And so I really lean into that. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to be myself now. And my feeling, and I've said this to my therapist. I will (laughs) let that be very clear. But I've said to her many times, I feel bigger than my body. I feel bigger Mm -hmm. than my body. Mm -hmm. And drinking helped me a lot with that too because a lot of times feeling like my, whatever you want to call it, consciousness, aura, awareness, whatever – expands bigger than my physical body, that can be really scary because that means I can bump into things that I can't see and I can bump into things and people can rub off on me in ways that I can't anticipate. Hmm. So, which is actually funny because you're reminding me that often performing outside feels very scary for me. I don't usually get afraid performing, but I I get a little freaky performing performing outside because there's no walls for me to contain uh-huh. myself in. So when I go into that state of expansion and and playing into everything, it's like it could just keep going into the infinity. Is limitless. So I actually have to be very mindful of holding a barrier for myself that I don't normally have to hold when I'm in a room because I I can just fill the room right with myself. Whatever the room is. Whatever the room is. But when I'm outside, I it it just keeps going. So what do you do? Do you imagine walls? What do I do? I have to be very conscious. I don't imagine walls, but I imagine like if you can think of like a a bubble, like a soap bubble, um, like thickening the wall of a soap bubble. Mm. But but honestly, then I'll often keep it a lot closer Mm -hmm. than I normally do. Also, often, if I'm being really honest, sound systems when you're playing outdoors are challenging Mm -hmm. and tricky. Um, So I'm more often a little distracted and focused on the sound system, maybe, you know, needing my attention a Uh little bit more. and that gets into that technical, like, okay, this is a show where I'm just going to... So that might be a moment where I, watching you perform, would think, oh, that's a different Jocelyn than yeah, I've seen definitely. at Auto Shrunken Head. Definitely. Here in this field at in Northampton, Massachusetts. Sure, absolutely. And that's so funny. I actually played in a field in Northampton, Massachusetts. I think I thought of that because I was looking at your <laughs> website. I, <don't> <laughs> I definitely did that. And, you know, and and it's interesting because, like, 
depending on the shape and the size in the room, but also, of course, at a place like the gay witch, witch seance, you also know, okay, we are literally witches here. Everyone really wants this. So let yes. me like really dig into We've it. We've left so I'm glad. extra space in yeah, our auras. Totally. But as a performer, you know, it also depends on context, right? Like I'm not going to do something like that, you know, if I'm on stage with a band, you know, supporting somebody or like, you know, singing back up in there. You know, I'm going to fill the space as I can, but I'm also going to like stay in my zone and be respectful of right. whose show it is. It's not always my show. Right. So that's really important to like be able to – but I get to enjoy it to that level. Yes. No matter who I'm playing with. And that is something that I can do outside successfully. I don't I – don't, I hope you don't mind if I give you an example at a really wonderful – I would love. Oh, my gosh. This And it, and it's it sounds a little name-droppy, so I like hesitate to say it. But it was such a perfect example. Um, this summer I was on tour – opening up for Ani DeFranco with the Righteous Babes review. Um, that was Gracie and Rachel and me and Zoe Bookbinder. And Ani was opening for Brandy Carlisle in Chicago. And so on that show, and it was an outdoor pavilion, you know, on the edge of Lake Michigan, gorgeous 10,000-person venue. Ani let us sing in her band that day, which she did not have to do. Mm-hmm. We were – that could have been an off day for us. She did not need us there. But she's incredible and, and you know, so, so she's like, of course you're going to sit in with the band. So we got to sing backup for her. And I had I, – I went into that day. I had the biggest panic attack, hmm. not because – of the people or the names or anything, but because there was so – it was an outdoor space and I – my aura was just going and going and going and I couldn't contain it. And I freaked out and I was like, guys, I got to I gotta go jump in the lake. I got to go jump in the lake. I got to go jump. I'm sorry. I got to go. And so thankfully I always tore with my swimsuit. So I, I had to get – and it was this maze of people. It was bananas back there. It was like a city. It was like a city. Mm-hmm. It was – the backstage of that pavilion was like – Trailers and trailers and trailers. This huge, like, catering tent. I mean, I've never been any place like that. I'd never sang for that many people before. And so I wasn't – I was just like, how am I going to contain this? So I just – I had to root, and I I hopped in the lake. I stayed in there as long as I could. I didn't have very long, but I I got in there, and I was like, I am safe. I I can do this. This is good. And so I went back in, and then I was like, okay – my barrier, and I imagined a dome over okay. the edge of where the seating was. Uh-huh. That's what I had to do, and I and I didn't tell this to anybody. So thanks for letting me have an opportunity to talk about it because I don't I don't talk about this. Like, I'm why s- would I talk about this? <laughs> I'm <laughs> like, so glad that you told yeah. the story for a number of reasons, but one of them is I can imagine a performer in that moment having a panic attack yeah. because they're worried. They won't be able to reach this many people. No, I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lose my, I'm gonna go off into Mars. Like I can't, and and I wasn't worried about. Will they think I'm good? Will they think I'm a good singer? I know I, I love singing. This is, I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried. Is Brandy Carlisle gonna like me? No, I, I had, we had played with her before. I was like, that's fine. I trust Ani. I trust my bandmates. I trust this microphone. I know they're gonna have a great sound system, and they did. Uh-huh. And so by doing that and grounding and rooting, getting in that lake and washing it off and going, okay, I do have autonomy. I can create this barrier. I'm not gonna float out into space. I am safe. I don't need a drink to. Bring me back into the earth, 
you know, because being grounded and, and being in the earth is really important, right? Like, there's a lot of good stuff here. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of good stuff mm-hmm. on earth, mm-hmm. you know, which is why it's fun to, like, toe that line between, like, like you're saying, the smear, like, the consciousness and the subconsciousness, like, mm-hmm. the sacred and the profane, the sleeping and the waking. Like, it's fun to toe that line. Um, but when it feels like it's going too imbalanced into this direction of going out of control, mm-hmm. it can be really spirally really quickly, you know? So then I got to really enjoy that show. I had a blast. It was, like, one of my favorite things now that I've ever done. And if I hadn't had that swim and, like, really kind of capped off my energetic field in that moment, I would have not had a good experience at all. I'm so glad that you knew yourself so well as a performer to be able to give yourself that gift. Mm. Because if I'm hearing you right, there was a moment earlier in your evolution (laughs) where that might not have happened. Yes, that's very true. That's very true. Before we move off this idea of auras, I just want to say that I think you have also, in talking about this, helped me understand what was happening for me in that moment of seeing you perform for Mm -hmm. the first time, which is that I was realizing that there were corners of my own aura that were permeable. There were were doors that were open that I didn't know were there or that nobody had ever stepped into before (laughs) and that that's what you were doing in that moment is Mm -hmm. you were stepping into my field of resonance in a way that uh nobody had ever done before i love this i can just quit now i've accomplished my goal (laughs) as an artist i'm good i'm done thank you sam I'm, I, I sign in. I, I retire. This has been the Midnight Disease <laughs> on Ending Careers since 2022. 